This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. It's been 15 years since the 9-11 terror attacks. Today, my guest and I discuss how civil liberties and national security has changed since 2001. We break down some agencies, policies, and controversies that have emerged since the attacks. Karen Greenberg is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law. She's out now with a new book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. Karen's joining me by phone. I want to start with a very simple question. Are New Yorkers safer now than pre-September 11, 2001? New Yorkers and Americans are safer now, largely because we have the country has poured um, a tremendous amount of time, money, and resources into thinking how to make us safe in a variety of different circumstances from a variety of different kinds of threats. What are some of these ways? Well, for one thing, we have built up um, a national security apparatus in Washington that is proactive when it comes to uh, terrorism and to preventing terrorism. Um, there are a number of uh, attempts to think about how to respond to incidents in New York. I think it's more a sense of confidence than are we safer. I think the, the way to to ask the question is, are we better prepared for some kind of disaster, whether it's a disaster that comes from a natural um, event or from terrorism or for some kind of shooter incident? We, we have built up a number of protections in our police forces and our intelligence agencies um, that have made us safer. In addition to that, the the uh, counterterrorism efforts of the Bush and Obama administration have been multi-pronged and involve not just law enforcement, but intelligence overseas, law enforcement overseas, and military capacity. And so in this interagency multi-pronged arena, uh, the mechanisms of safety and of resiliency, should something happen, have been beefed up so that it's not just that we're safer, but we're also um, poised to recover should something happen. And all of that together uh, minimizes both the possibility of an attack and the what if an attack happened aftermath. Can you give me some details, uh, any uh, more specific details about how we are better prepared? I know, for example, uh, the current police commissioner, Bratton, has said it's not a matter of if there is going to be another event, but when there is. Let me begin by saying I've never liked the it's not a matter of if, it's when. That may be true, but it is not, it's not something that I think is inevitable. Um, this, we're not talking about um, a tornado or a hurricane. We're talking about specific individuals who have to be able to have the expertise, the wherewithal, uh, and the access to be able to get the kind of um, materials, weapons, um, uh, and network, if they need a network, uh, to conduct uh, some kind of large-scale attack. So I, I dispute that. Um, okay. I think public officials in general, and I think um, Bratton, for the most part, has been terrific on this, but, but public officials in general should be much more confident about the floor that we've built underneath our, you know, ourselves. In terms of Bratton um, and the police department here, they have an intelligence unit that tries to figure out who might be a threat and to carefully sift through the information um, 
you know, the, the NYPD is 36,000 officers. It's the largest in the country. Um, it's larger than the FBI. Um, and they work very well with the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force here, uh, especially under Bratton. They've worked particularly well to have a seamless enterprise. Uh, Bratton has also taken it upon himself to develop um, a, a rapid response team, thinking not just about uh, Islamic terrorism, um, violent t- extremism, but about um, shooters and, and, and violence that is not necessarily tied to international uh, terrorist concerns. Now, backing up a little bit in terms of national security, which rules and laws began to change following the 9-11 attacks? Many. You Can know, you name some? <laughs> yeah. I think the the piece of the American democratic fabric that suffered the most starting at 9-11 and continuing till now is the Fourth Amendment, which protects uh, citizens from unlawful search and seizure um, and surveillance invading one's privacy, uh, collecting information on an individual, investigating them without a warrant. These are all issues that began to uh, disappear and protections that began to disappear um, bit by bit uh, after 9-11. And that's much of what the book talks about is, is how that particular dismantling of the Fourth Amendment took place. That would be one. Another uh, issue, another constitutional protection that's under great pressure since 9-11 is freedom of speech um, and religion. And just to give you an example, there have been 500 terrorism cases brought in the United States against um, defendants accused of terrorism. And in uh, several of those cases, a few dozens of those cases, it's been hard to tell what the difference between um, free speech and action is. And so this is something that law enforcement's paid a lot of attention to, trying to figure out what would be an actual overt act that would convince a jury to uh, convict somebody. But I think the, the, the lines have been very much blurred and that the uh, benefit of the doubt goes to the government because at the end they can say, but we're preventing a terrorist attack. But I think that line between speech and action has been blurred in a way that it, it wasn't blurred on the eve uh, of 9-11. Karen, so, can you give me an example of what that line looks like? Or- sure. Somebody might send a video to their friend, and it could be a horrific video. Look at this. Um, look at this bomb that blew up in Baghdad. Look at how amazing that is, you know? And they might even say something like, you know, the West should get out of the Middle East or something along those lines. That's not a terrorist act. Um, And so what law enforcement often does when they come upon something like that is decide to see if this individual might have a proclivity towards something more than just expression. But the question keeps coming up over and over and over again in court, where is the line between free speech and taking action? And there are specific actions that individuals take. For example, buying a plane ticket to go abroad to fight with the um, Islamic State might be an overt act in in the context of terrorism. The statute under which these people are usually uh, um, tried is uh, our material support statutes, which means offering any kind of support. It could be yourself, it could be money, it could be helping another person, it could be providing a weapon. But you, you don't want it to be just pontificating in in a way that is, you know, using um, speech. So providing support 
is a lot different than just saying, hey, look at this particular thing that someone might disagree with. Well, that's what's being litigated because what what some what prosecutors would try to say is no 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 that's it's it's support for the idea and that's where the First Amendment really comes you know into the crosshairs of the discussion and so libertarians and uh, myself included would very much say that we have to protect freedom of speech but it can't go to the point of um, participating in inciting violence etc so that would be another constitutional protection that's been um, that's been under scrutiny. Uh, since 9-11. Another one would be um, the uh, general warrant, which also comes up under uh, Fourth Amendment, which is that in the days of the uh, revolution, one of the things that the colonists did not want was for the uh, king and the king's um, government to be able to get a general warrant, one that said, look, we're suspicious of this group or we, you know, have a broad suspicion. And one of the things that was integral to the creating of this country and the Constitution was the idea that a warrant had to be specific. It was directed at an individual and it was based upon specific facts and specific acts. It wasn't a hunch. It wasn't based on theories. It was based on facts and it wasn't a broad sweep. It was about individuals. What's happened in the wake of the war on terror, particularly in the programs of uh, the um, NSA that Edward Snowden made his revelations about, is that the United States was using a general warrant, um, basically a, a wide dragnet to sweep up um, in telecommunications information um, from groups, um, individuals, or just everybody um, on the idea that this was the best way to keep us uh, safe. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law. She's out now with a new book called Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. We're discussing civil liberties and national security following the September 11th attacks. Karen, let me just back up a little bit for the NSA. I want you to help us understand, help my listeners understand. Let's just break it all the way down. What is the NSA? The National Security Agency is a part of the intelligence apparatus of the United States government. And what it does is it monitors globally collection um, and analysis of information specifically tied to foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, espionage purposes. Um, it's known as signals intelligence, um, and it is you know, considered one of the bulwarks of what makes the United States safe in terms of what it knows about what's going on in the rest of the world and determining its enemies. Earlier, Karen, you, you mentioned Edward Snowden, and some people kind of consider him either a hero or a traitor. Who is he, and how does he factor into the whole NSA controversy? Yeah, so Edward Snowden was the um, individual who, as a contractor for the U.S. government, just, um, working on classified information, decided to download and take um, classified information uh, out of the country and basically has lived abroad in in uh, Russia since, I guess, June of 2013. And he took with him a lot of documents. He is a very controversial figure. There are those who think he did uh, something very important for the country. I'm among them. The first document that Edward Snowden released was a Verizon business records um, a document in which the U.S. government told Verizon Business that you must give us all of the records you have. Um, and that was a 
bombshell when it hit. Why? Uh, the, because the government getting having access without a warrant to everybody's um, communications is not something that Americans expect. We expect that our communications are private, that they are protected by the Constitution, and that if the government wants to know something about this, they have to have probable cause to know something. Mm -hmm. And even in the case of suspicion of foreign intelligence, there has to be a sense of fact and reason and activity. It can't just be a broad sweep of let's just assume everybody could be guilty and then let's go into it and see what it is. It's just not how our theory of government or our theory of law enforcement is constructed. So, Karen, what do you say to critics who would say, well, you know, after 9-11, we need the information so that we are safe? I would say that it doesn't make us safer. I would say that one of the big lessons from the war on terror is that quantity and quality are two very different things, and that quantity has has not gotten us what uh, we expected it to get us, that, that what you need, and I think a lot of the intelligence agency feels this way and has operated in this way, is focused, intelligent, educated, knowledgeable analysis. So let me ask you this, Karen. If the government has my records talking to my mom for the past 10 years, what's worst case scenario that they could do with this information? They could say, you talked with your mom, you said that you um, were opposed to um, uh, American policy in terms of using targeted killings abroad. We think you're uh, a suspect. Or your mom got a call from some other person, and that person comes from a certain country, and we don't trust that person, and therefore you, by extension, may also be involved. So now we're going to monitor everything you say and everything you do or we're going to come on and a meet chance. You. Oh, or we're going to kind of meet you and we're going to talk to you and we're going to see if this is a road you would go down if somebody came your way. Is there anything the average American could do to make sure that they're not being monitored or any steps that they can take? Well, there's all these encryption programs um, from Tor to, which is, I guess, the most well-known to others. Um, the iPhone is famously encrypted, right? That just having gone through a, a controversy, um, which for the moment they've won. So yes, there are many ways, depending on just how um, protective of your privacy you want to be. And there's a whole spectrum of what you can do. I think there are also a lot of people who just think, I'm going to operate in this free space no matter what, and I'm not going to worry about the government coming in at me. And depending on what you do for a living, um, that can, you know, will probably have to do with where you are on the spectrum. But I think it's really interesting to point out that our our sense of perception about who we are and what we want to make available has changed. There are people who are very protective of privacy, and I think we all understand that and, and are reared that way in this country. There's also a sense of freedom about um, what you can share and how freely you can share so many things. And so I think this is where the conversation goes. Karen, how did civil liberties groups factor into the NSA? There had been this push by the ACLU and others to bring the suspicion of the NSA program, the 215 program it was called, the metadata program. They wanted to bring it into the courts to get some kind of um, attention to litigate this issue. The point I want to make is that as much as civil libertarians are important and were important to keeping alive these issues, to bringing them to the courts, to making headway, to making things happening. The reason the Patriot Act sunsetted was that the government did a study of 215. And what they found was that the use of 215, this broad warrantless surveillance program on everyone essentially, didn't work in, in terms of creating 
any kind of uh, additional security. That it was a program that was not worth what um, what it what they thought it would be worth. That in fact there were other surveillance programs, some still intact, that did work, but that this particular program did not work. And the reason this is important is that the realist view of how things are going to change in the wake of over-aggressive policies in the name of the war on terror and national security is that it seems it's going to have to be a combination of civil libertarian intent and concern and the the research showing that these programs are not effective, or at least are not effective in the way that they were claimed to be effective. Another example of this would be torture. For all of the um, criticism of having a national torture policy that was put in place early in the Bush administration and that lasted for several years, and for all of the ways in which it has damaged the ability to try the people who were tortured, uh, the fact is that program ended um, not just because of the civil libertarian human rights concerns. It ended also, it seems, because it really didn't reveal what they needed to reveal. And that's what a report of Senator Dianne Feinstein that was released um, over a year ago, a 6,000-page report showed, was that over and over and over again, what intelligence officials had hoped they would get from torture didn't pan out, and that at times they got erroneous information that turned out to be a danger of its own kind. Karen, continuing on uh, what you were talking about when it comes to torture, can you break down the controversy surrounding the Guantanamo Bay detention camps? (laughs) Sure. Um, In 2001, as the United States was fighting in Afghanistan in response to the attacks of 9-11, the uh, government decided to open a detention facility that was far away from the combat, and but that was also offshore from the United States so that they could have more leeway in terms of what they could do outside of domestic law and, as it turns out, outside of international law. And, and by opened, that, do you mean like the Geneva Convention outside Geneva, of that? Absolutely. Okay, so these prisoners, because um, the Geneva Convention was supposed to sort of dictate how detainees and prisoners were supposed to be treated, so they were outside of the well, Geneva Convention. Well, here's what happened. So in June, uh, in January of 2002, the United States opened Guantanamo Bay detention facility at a naval base that existed already in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And they brought prisoners there and and 300 to begin with, and 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 it increased to almost 800 over time. And they were brought there without any kind of regulatory regime. What the initial people who ran the camp were told was try to live in the spirit and of the Geneva Conventions, but we, we don't have any protocols to give you right now. But as time went on, without these protocols in place, uh, Guantanamo very quickly, actually, within the first few months, moved to a regime that was very much um, not within the Geneva Conventions and in one particular way, and that w- in one particular legal way. And that was, as you suggested, that the detainees were not called prisoners of war. They were called 
called, as we know, they were called um, detainees, and therefore they were, to the extent of the founders of Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility, they were considered not to be subject to the Geneva Conventions, which give protections to individuals who are in uh, captivity in in this uh, war so they basically, uh, situation. So they weren't considered prisoners, but they, they were just be, people who were being held Correct. and questioned, but uh, questioned in ways that would be seen in any other arena as possible torture where waterboarding might come in is well i think i think that's that's going a little far i okay. think they when they started guantanamo and they were guantanamo and torture are issues that that although they overlap um they overlap in some very important ways at least at this period of time i would keep a little in the very early period i would keep separate from one another okay. i think that the idea of wanting to interview and interrogate individuals beyond the protections of the geneva conventions was important Eventually, that that wedge um, of not calling them prisoners of war led the reasoning of of uh, lawyers in the Justice Department and policymakers at the White House and elsewhere to design this full scale torture policy called which they call an enhanced interrogation program, which allowed waterboarding, et cetera, which was the hallmark of detention facilities around the world that were CIA facilities in other countries um, known as black sites, where a number of individuals were brought and uh, interrogated and tortured. And a number of those individuals are now at Guantanamo Bay, but that happened subsequently. That happened later on. Yeah. So the, you know, you ask what the issue of Guantanamo was. In the very first stages of Guantanamo and in the military order establishing Guantanamo, there was the notion that uh, Guantanamo would keep these prisoners, uh, but also that Guantanamo would try some of them. So there would be some military commissions, perhaps, and some detentions, and who knows, until the end of hostilities. As we've learned, the end of hostilities in the war on terror is a hard endpoint to find. It didn't come with the killing of Osama bin Laden, the head of al-Qaeda. It doesn't come with these individual uh, drone strikes that are taking out top uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS leaders and have been for a while now uh, around the world. So it's hard to say what what would be the end of uh, hostilities. So a number of these detainees haven't been convicted or sentenced. Uh, so there has so there's a category of detainee referred to as indefinite detainees or by very brilliantly by um, the Miami Herald uh, Carol Rosenberg as forever detainees, mm-hmm. and these are individuals who the United States government has determined are too dangerous to release, but on whom there is not sufficient evidence to try. And that category of individual has been whittled down from the time of the Bush administration to now, where it is somewhere between, probably between two and three dozen. And it's being whittled away um, bit by bit by the Obama administration, who, who has taken, although they, although they accept the idea of indefinite detention, they have whittled down this population bit by bit. Before something called a periodic review board, which is a review board to determine whether or not an individual still poses a threat. And 
for the last maybe 10 or 11 months, these periodic review boards have been meeting with increasing frequency to determine who should stay and who should go. And so now you have a situation where you have 61 detainees at Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility, which is what we mean when we say Guantanamo. Ten of them are military commissions cases, and the rest of them are people who have already been cleared for release but have not we don't yet know where they're going to go. The, the arrangement has not been made for what country they will go to. And the rest of them who are still considered to be um, indefinite detainees or forever detainees who are too dangerous to release but, uh, but whom there is not enough evidence to try. So what is going to happen with the forever detainees? Because it doesn't fall under the same laws that we would have in the, in the states. Well, it, it, that's an even more interesting question, which gets into some territory that, that everything about Guantanamo is so confusing. But just to give you an example, two of the charges in particular that detainees were charged with and that they assumed some of the uh, commissions would go forward with have been declared by courts in the United States to be charges you can't bring against Guantanamo detainees. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that now, but what I will say is that whether or not we could ever try these people um, in federal court is is something, you know, I really can't answer. You know, you have to defer to prosecutors and others about that. I'm not sure that some of them wouldn't um, plead guilty uh, if they were charged in a federal court, but I don't know that for sure. Um, so here are the options. The options are you keep Guantanamo open for these few individuals. The cost of that per detainee is estimated to be somewhere between 10 and $11 million a year per detainee. And that's taxpayers' now, money. Yep. I call that an irresponsible decision on the part of Congress if they decide to go down that line. Remember, as the population dwindles, the cost per detainee goes up. So if we're talking about cutting it in half again, and it's now, I think it's six six million dollars per year per detainee and you cut it in half you get the calculation so i it's it's it, i mean most people think that congress will still dig their heels in the reason is that they think these individuals are too dangerous to bring to the united states and i, I personally find this an extremely offensive assumption how come because i think our law enforcement and our prison system knows how to keep people in jail and I'm not worried about a prison outbreak, and I'm not worried about um, extensive radicalization within the prisons. We're not talking about enough people. Um, we're talking about a couple dozen people. And I'm, I think that, that, that when, when Guantanamo Bay opened, when it opened its doors to, to the camp, the um, government officials brought together all of the families that were on Guantanamo Bay, the hundreds of families that were at Guantanamo Bay, and said to these spouses and children, we're going to bring the worst of the worst in the world here from the war on terror. And this was months after 9-11, right after 9-11. We're going to bring them here. And we understand how dangerous the situation is, particularly, by the way, they didn't have a prison. At that point, they were just in cages. Um, and we're going to bring them here. And if you feel insecure about this or if this worries you, we understand this and we can, you can opt to go home. To another, you know, we'll take you to another base or to where you lived before you came to Guantanamo Bay. And the families opted to stay. 
And I interviewed these families. And why did they opt to stay? They opted to stay because they trusted the military to keep them safe. They were not worried about these guys harming them. They really weren't. And that's why I say I find it offensive. Why are we so worried about some kind of superhuman powers if we put these individuals in our military prisons on U.S. soil or um, in our maximum security prisons or um, in our supermax in Colorado? It just, to me, um, seems to not make sense. Any more than returning to your earlier question about are we safer, for all of the money, time, energy, and thought we've poured into our military and intelligence and law enforcement apparatus since 9-11, to think that they don't keep us safe is such an undermining of our own trust in our system and and the people who inhabit it that I find it similarly, um, you know, surprising. Uh, Backing up to my first question, once a government takes some rights away from Americans, can they ever be restored? Yes, of course. Um, It takes time, though. And what happens over a 15-year period, like the one we've just been through, is that individuals start to accept the way it is. For example, there is an acceptance of a a proliferation of um, high-powered guns, uh, rifles, outside Lincoln Center, outside the train stations, etc. So... Are we going to roll back? It's not just about rights, but are we going to always live in a state where this amount of security is deemed necessary? Um, and and I think, so it's not just rights. It's what kind of place and world do we want to live in? And I think the real challenge is not what incremental rights can we as individuals or as a society get back or restore. I think the real question is, can we find a way to get to a world where we are not expecting um, threats and violence at any turn. And that's the actual challenge. Then that's something we should be paying attention to. I'd like to thank my guest, Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University's School of Law. Her new book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, is out now by Crown Publishing. I'm Robin Shannon for Fordham Conversations. Where were you when the Stop turning that September day out in the yard. Your wife and children working on some stage in LA. Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout?